Now, the top of the hour on the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn presents the Green News Report. There was an amber alert in place overnight, but no one anticipated this deluge. Storm Kieran, latest to rapidly intensify before slamming into the UK and France. Human activities are making the earth saltier and not in a good way. Plus... Today I'm proud to announce new funding that will go directly to rural communities to fix aging critical rural infrastructure like electricity, water, wastewater systems that haven't been replaced in decades. Biden launches major investments in America's farm country to boost resilience and fight climate change. All of that major news and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. The windmills are driving them crazy. They're driving, they're driving the whales, I think, a little batty. Um, sir? Do you happen to live near a windmill? Just wondering. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, here we go again with another storm rapidly intensifying, this time on a whole other part of the world. (laughs) Yes, unfortunately, as we go to air, Storm Kieran is lashing the UK and northern France with hurricane force winds after undergoing explosive rapid intensification driven by record warm ocean waters in the North Atlantic. Kieran is the second big storm in a week to slam into the UK. Warm oceans are also intensifying its rainfall, triggering renewed flooding in areas with already saturated ground. Scientists link the ocean heat and unusually warm global temperatures to human-caused climate change. And they had no idea what was coming because of rapid intensification. And now the Earth is getting saltier because humanity is messing with the Earth's salt cycle with potentially dangerous consequences. That's according to a first-of-its-kind study this week in the journal Nature. Salts like calcium, magnesium, and regular table salt that are used in agriculture, mining, industry, and road salt treatments. All are increasing salt concentrations in places where they don't normally occur. It's contaminating aquifers, corroding lead water pipes, affecting soils, freshwater lakes and rivers, crop production, and even the air. The researchers warn that excess salt is, quote, an existential threat to freshwater supplies across the U.S. Now we have to be worried about salt. In better news, this week the Biden Interior Department approved the largest offshore wind project yet for the U.S., 27 miles off the coast of Virginia. It is the fifth massive wind farm cleared to begin construction in U.S. waters and will ultimately power nearly a million homes. Well, have they asked the whales about that? However, the approval comes amid economic turbulence that's causing wind developers to delay projects along the East Coast. This week, Danish wind power developer Orsted canceled two offshore wind projects off the coast of New Jersey, citing supply chain bottlenecks and high interest rates that are raising costs. Mm. The cancellations are a victory for anti-wind energy groups backed by fossil fuel interests that quickly formed to oppose the offshore wind projects and falsely blamed whale deaths on those wind projects. (laughs) Their windmills are causing whales to die in numbers never seen before. They're washing up and show. I saw it this weekend. Three of them came up. They wouldn't, you wouldn't see it once a year. Now they're coming up on a weekly basis. The windmills are driving them crazy. Federal and independent scientific data indicate that most whale deaths are caused by commercial shipping and fishing gear entanglement. No, it's the windmills that are driving them batty. Everybody knows it. In other actions, the administration also overcame decades of drilling industry resistance to begin regulating nearly half a million miles of what are known as natural gas gathering pipelines for the first time ever, requiring leak detection and safety measures near residential areas, which the industry is not happy about. You mean we did not used to inspect them for leaks near houses? Yep. 
Finally, President Biden traveled to Minnesota this week to unveil $5 billion in new investments directly in rural America. Funding from the Inflation Reduction Act and the Infrastructure Law will go to replace aging rural water and electric infrastructure, expand high-speed internet, and help farmers fight climate change and diversify by harvesting renewable energy. We're investing nearly $20 billion to help farmers and ranchers tackle climate crisis through climate-smart agriculture and cover crops, nutrient management, reducing greenhouse gas emissions while improving overall health of the soil and the water. Did you hear that, farmers and ranchers? Did you hear who's actually helping you out? For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks, Mastodons, and sites still known as Twitter at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Please help progressive voices support the Green News Report by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. The country's not well. From Interfaith Alliance, this is The State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in New York City. You know, I often think about this as, as a way of the country really becoming unmoored, psychologically mm. un- unmoored. Understanding the forces moving our society and culture is essential before trying to create needed change. And this week, we've got expert takes on two important aspects of America 2023. We'll take a dive into some of the disturbing findings of the latest Public Religion Research Institute American Values Survey. Reagan's biggest success was mainstreaming this evangelical vision to the larger public. Now, when he said shining city on a hill, that meant one thing to religious conservatives. To many secular people, it was a harmless phrase. And later, the author of a riveting book that examines how the blessing of the religious right gave one president a second term. Writing the American Dream, how the media mainstreamed Reagan's evangelical vision. We are growing the state of belief, building on our 17-year history by partnering with Religion News Service. And as part of the RNS family of podcasts, there's a next generation, the State of Belief podcast I want to make sure you're subscribed to. Please visit stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. It would really help us to have you subscribe and to tell people you're close to about the conversations you are hearing. The State of Belief is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. Dr. Robert P. Jones is president and founder of the Public Religion Research Institute and author of the New York Times best-selling book, The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future, his third. PRRI is always coming out with invaluable findings on who we are and what we believe as Americans. The 2023 American Values Survey is out, and there's a lot in here to discuss. And so, Robbie, welcome back to the State of Belief. Thanks, Paul. I'm glad to be here. Listen, first of all, let me start by saying congratulations on the success of The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to Shared American Future. The, the reviews have been amazing. This is a book that obviously people were hungry for. And so congratulations on the success. New York Times bestselling. Really great. I hope our listeners have had a chance to go out and get it and learn about the great research that Robbie has done. Oh, thanks, Paul. That was, it's been an amazing ride. Um, it it yeah. seems to have struck a nerve um, this fall, so it's it's been great. What are some of the headlines that came out of this uh, survey? Yeah, you know, it, it is kind of a sifting process, you know. So we ask, you know, well over 50 questions. Um, we've got hundreds of ways we could slice the data demographically, by religion, by gender, education, race, ethnicity, you know, uh, party and and so we're kind of looking for the patterns that tell a story about where we are um, uh, in the country. And and there were a few that really stood out this year. 
one of them is that everybody's concerned about the future of democracy. Um, so I think that's kind of one headline. You know, three quarters of the country say that the future of American democracy is at stake in the 2024 presidential election. So it's one of the few places, in fact, where we find bipartisan agreement on the ground. So uh, it's 84% of Democrats, uh, but it's also 77% of Republicans uh, who believe the future of democracy is at stake uh, in the 2024 election. Uh, the other thing in terms of just general mood, I guess, of the country is it's pretty pessimistic um, out there, um, you know, that that um, uh, people believe the country's kind of gotten off track. Um, now, there are obviously very different reasons people uh, believe uh, the country's off track, but but by and large, it's fairly pessimistic. We had we have a slim majority of Americans who say America's best days are now behind us. Fifty two percent of the country says that. Um, but but there's a huge uh, partisan gap on this question. Thirty more than thirty points. Uh, it's primarily Republicans, um, and you know we do sometimes see this. You know, if you're a Republican and there's a Democrat in the White House, we do sometimes see this partisan effect where Republicans are more gloomy if there's a Democrat in the White House. But it's it's two thirds of Republicans saying America's best day are behind us. Thirty five percent of Democrats uh, saying America's best days are behind us. But in general, even even when Trump was in the White House, I think it was largely because Trump was kind of, you know, the American carnage president. Um, you know, he would give uh -huh. speeches talking about how uh, awful uh, things were in America, even while he was in charge. <laughs> I think that was his inaugural speech was on American carnage. It was like, oh, yeah. OK, that's pretty good. So there has been, All right. yeah, there's more doom and gloom among Republicans, I think, as a whole. Uh, but I think it's largely because the country out on many things are is just trending in a, in a direction uh, that that. It, the, the culture is moving in uh, in a direction that's not in lockstep, right? So there's, you know, uh, two thirds of the country supports uh, marriage equality uh, today. Uh, two thirds of the country supports abortion rights uh, today, right? And so I think that's also uh, kind of lending to uh, the kind of doom and gloom among Republicans. It's not just partisanship, but the sense that the country is kind of moving away. You know, quarter of the country is uh, religiously unaffiliated today. Among young people, it's four in ten. Uh, right. And and the we're no longer a white Christian country, as you and I've talked about before. But just to put the number out there again. Um, today, the country is only 42 percent white and Christian. If you add all of the white Christians up, right, Protestant, Catholic, non-denominational, you still only get to 42 percent. And just 20 years ago, that number was 54. Um, so they're uh -huh. sensing that, you know, that shift in the country as well. Right. Right. Well, one of the ones that, you know, at least was <laughs> the headline for me was. Um, the support for violence and political violence. I mean, can you talk a little bit about that? That was a, a kind of a, a terrifying um, number and what seems to be a shift um, that uh, we've seen. Talk about that statistic. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, so the numbers we were talking about before, I think were kind of the bigger context and kind of mood in the country. But, um, you know, the, the, the finding that we ended up really putting in, in the spotlight had to do with um, political violence. And we've been asking a question really since the insurrection. We've been asking about um, whether uh, people believe uh, that we may have to resort to violence to save the country. So our, our question read, the full question wording is an agree or disagree question. We've asked this question eight times uh, since March of 2021. Uh, and it reads like this, because things have gotten so far off track, true American patriots may have to resort to violence in order to save the country. When we first asked this question, um, uh, you know, uh, again, you know, two years ago, a little more than two years ago, it was 15% of Americans, one five, uh, who uh, agreed uh, with that statement. Uh, again, we've asked this question eight times. This is the first time uh, that the number has exceeded ever 20%. Uh, and we asked this question in our most recent survey is 23% of the country uh, that now says uh, they can, you know, things may have gotten so far off track, true American patriots may have to resort to violence in order to save the country. Um, there is also, um, uh, it, it has increased across the board, um, uh, really in most demographic groups, but it is most pronounced on the right. Uh, so mm -hmm. among Republicans, it is now one in three Republicans, 33%. Uh, who say uh, true American patriots may have to resort to violence to save the country. It's 13% of Democrats. So it's about two and a half times 
the number of Republicans uh, compared to the number of Democrats that say this. And then one other thing we we did is, in additionally to kind of looking at the kind of ideological and partisan spread on the numbers, is to try to understand what attitudes were connected, um, you know, to this, uh, to these ideas, so that you can better understand like what's driving people to say we may have to resort to violence uh, to save the country. Once you see that, it becomes pretty clear um, that the real support for this is really on the on America's political right and religious right uh, uh, today. So I'll just give you kind of a few uh, of the of the um, the attitudinal shifts or attitudinal um, pieces that make you much more likely uh, to say uh, we you may have to resort to violence. So um, if, for example, uh, uh, you believe that the 2020 election was stolen. Uh, from Donald Trump. That, in fact, is the single highest um, uh, at, our attitude that, that makes for the single highest support for political violence. If you believe the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump, 46% of that group, uh, nearly half of that group, says that we may have to resort to violence in order to save the country, which immediately, of course, brings back those images uh, from January uh, 6. Uh, if you just have a favorable view uh, of Donald Trump, four in 10 of that group uh, says we may have to resort to violence. Uh, there are three other attitudes that are basically four in 10. If you held these attitudes, four in 10 of that group uh, says you may have to resort to violence to save the country. Here are the three. Uh, immigrants are invading our country and misplacing our cultural and ethnic background. God intended America to be a, more, a, a new promised land for European Christians. And society as a whole has become too soft and feminine. Each of those, if you agree with each of those statements, four in 10 of each of those groups say we may have to resort to violence. And then there's, there's one more that's still above average. Um, and that is the, if you agree that the killings of, of black Americans by police are uh, isolated incidents rather than part of a pattern of how police treat African-Americans, uh, three in 10 of that group is uh, likely to say, say that true American patriots may have to resort to violence. So to distill all that down, um, here are the things that uh, uh, contribute to and are positively correlated with uh, a willingness to kind of resort to political violence. A belief in the big lie, favorable views of Trump, belief in the so-called great replacement theory, uh, Christian nationalism, uh, patriarchy, and denials of systemic racism. Like that's basically the formula uh, for right. uh, those who are um, more, more willing to support <clears throat> political violence today. I think it's easy to, um, you know, hear a statement like Christian nationalism or this core belief in Christian nationalism that God intended America to be a kind of promised land for European Christians, right? That's what the question says. So it's whiteness, you know, embedded uh -huh. in in the in the in, in the question. Um, you know, it's an attitude, by the way, that a majority of Republicans affirm that statement. A majority of white evangelicals affirm uh, that statement, and it sounds, I think, it's sometimes if you just hear it um, in the abstract. Um, it it sounds maybe just a little, you know, okay, it's dated, it's fringe or something like that. But again, this view has captured one of our two political parties um, and, and 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 a whole group of mainstream white Christians in the country now has has become kind of centered around this idea. And uh, it's not just a metaphor. Right. kind of the country as a Christian nation is not just some abstract thing. Uh, and if you think about it, and I wrote about this, you know, in the hidden roots of white supremacy, but if you if you if you take that seriously, right, and and that this is a God ordained end, uh, and and this is the way that the country was designed by God to be, then of course, if you if you really believe that, uh, it does open the door to protecting that vision of the country by any means necessary. Right. Um, one of the other statistics is about like how people are getting their information. Uh, which um, is very uh, disconcerting. Uh, the I just you know, QAnon is to me like how is this a thing? But it is really a thing. And so like talk to me about how you you do ask about QAnon in this um, survey. What what role is QAnon playing in our body politic? Yeah, you know, again, this is another thing you think of as being like really fringe um but you know it it is something that uh as odd as it is uh you know that it, it is capturing again a, a non uh a negligible number of uh, members of the country i think it is a, a 
you know, I often think about this as, as a way of the country really becoming unmoored, um, you know, psychologically mm. un, unmoored uh, in, in, in many ways. And, and I think, um, you know, when we have these demographic shifts we've been talking about, when the country is shifting away from something, I think that many white Christians were so sure it was, that is a white Christian country and would always be this thing. And the country is shifting uh, out from underneath them. I, I think it does lend itself, you know, it creates a kind of psychological space for these wild theories, anything to explain, um, you know, what's going on. And so, you know, we we ended up uh, spending way too much time uh, on QAnon message boards and stuff just to kind of get a, the vibe and reading articles about it. Um, uh, but we ended up coming up with a question to tr try to capture the core of it. And again, this is a question I never thought I'd really write as a uh, social scientist, but here's the question uh, that we ask people, do they agree or dis disagree? Um, the government, media, and financial worlds in the U.S. are controlled by a group of Satan-worshipping pedophiles who run a global child sex trafficking operation. That's the question. We asked this, started asking this after the insurrection in the last election cycle, um, and we asked that question, plus a couple of others. One is the political violence question is part of this battery that we classify people as QAnon believers or rejectors. Um, and then the other question we have is a kind of apocalyptic uh, thing that QAnon uh, has wrapped up in it, that is this idea that uh, there's a storm coming soon that's going to wipe away the current leaders and sweep in, um, you know, this kind of revolution of, of new uh, leader. So this kind of this cocktail of Satan worshiping pedophiles and political violence and uh, kind of apocalypticism that that is this you know mix this QAnon. But we ask all that, and 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 two years ago it was fourteen percent of the country that agreed uh, with all three of those statements. Um, believe it or not, uh, that number is up to twenty three uh, percent uh, today that that believes in and all. That's a quarter of the country um, that sort of affirms. Uh, this sentiment. And, you know, again, it's, it's, you can see it much more operative on the right. Republicans are twice as likely uh, as Democrats to affirm uh, those statements. Uh, and Democrats are three times as likely to reject um, all three of those statements. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's nearly a third of Republicans um, who uh, affirm uh, these statements. But I do think it, it is a kind of just sign, you know, that, uh, you know, the country's not well. Hmm. I mean, Unmoored is a very like vivid way to, to put it. Thank you for that. Um, so you wrote in your last book um, about a shared American future. So <laughs> where do you see that? Uh, you know, we, I, I, one of the great things about the book, The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and a Path to a Shared American Future, was that not only did you talk about just this the, this horrible expressions of white supremacy in with uh, with uh, Native Americans and and um, and Black Americans, but also that there was effort in communities to figure out a way forward together, acknowledging yeah. that and moving forward. And yet, when I hear this um, a uh, AVS for short, uh, the American Values Survey, it's very hard in some ways to see a way forward together. I think that's right. I mean, I think we're in a troubling place, a dangerous place um, for American democracy. Um, but, you know, it's important to remember that, like, what, when you just give those partisan numbers, you know, you do see two political parties and partisans really entrenched. But when you look at, you know, a number of other things, it the country is not really uh, on issues and, and on a lot of important things in a 50-50 split situation. Now, we're at a partisan split uh, that makes it look like that. But, you know, kind of go back to the couple numbers I gave at the beginning, um, you know, two thirds of the country today, it's two to one uh, supports marriage equality uh, for gay and lesbian couples. You know, it's two to one in the country that supports basic abortion rights that say abortion should be legal in all or most cases. Um, you know, it's two to one who uh, Americans who want to see a comprehensive immigration uh, reform uh, package that would make a path to citizenship for uh, immigrants who are in the country illegally. So on so many of our most vexing issues, um, we're actually in a two to one situation, right? The, right. the challenge is that that 30%, that 33% that's on the other side, um, uh, you know, has captured one of the 
to political parties. Uh, and so it has a kind of disproportionate leverage and power. That's true um, because of gerrymandering uh, at the local level, um, you know, uh, we're diluting minority votes at, at the state level. Um, all of that stuff kind of adds up to the Electoral College, um, I think, is another place where the, kind of uh, this vote to that 30 percent of Americans, um, you know, uh, uh, gets amplified uh, in, in ways mm. that, that make it look like. So, yes, we're deeply divided and, and the opinions are very strong. But on on even kind of yeah immigration, abortion, uh, LGBTQ rights, like those things that that you would say are the most divisive issues in the country, it's not a fifty fifty split at all. It's, it's yeah. more like a two yeah. to one split. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's such a good point, and it's so important to remember. Like you know, I remember we did a survey back uh, a few years ago about like you know the majority of Americans really actually want to be, live in a religiously diverse country. Yeah. You know, they, yeah. they celebrate that. Um, and uh, the majority of Americans are, you know, are glad that we live in a racially diverse country and want more equity, you know, and and uh, and justice around civil rights issues. And so it is really important to remember these things when a, when a survey like this comes out. It's like, oh, my God, there's just no future together. But actually, there is a future together. And people, you know, I mean, I'll just use the marriage equality, you know, issue it, that people can change their minds and we have to remember that people can change their minds. They can, they can, people who were dead fast against it today are, are absolutely supporting it. And so we have to remember that, you know, people out there who um, right now feel absolutely oppositional, you know, it is always important to invite an opportunity to imagine a different future for the country and for, for our community. So I really appreciate you reminding us of that. Dr. Robert P. Jones is president and founder of the Public Religion Research Institute and author of three influential books, The End of White Christian America, White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity, and his latest, a New York Times bestseller titled The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future. Robbie, thank you so much for being with us on The State of Belief. Uh, thanks, Paul. Always glad to be here. Up next, Diane Winston. Her latest book is titled Writing the American Dream, How the Media Mainstreamed Reagan's Evangelical Vision. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of The State of Belief anytime on our website at stateofbelief.com. And make sure you subscribe to the Next Generation Podcast at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. That's stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. You're listening to State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. State of Belief, twice every weekend on the Progressive Voices Network. 911, what's your emergency? America's healthcare system is broken and people are dying. Welcome to Code WAC, where we shine a light on America's callous healthcare system how it hurts us, and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar. This time on Code Whack, we're taking a closer look at what the millions of people being kicked off Medicaid due to the end of COVID protections can do about it, what's being done to help them, and what else can we do to make sure people don't get stranded without health insurance. To find out, we spoke to Loretta Alexander, who recently retired as the Health Policy Director of Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families. When I was in graduate school, the AMA, American Medical Association, and organizations like that were vehemently against universal health care. Now, fast forward, and the AMA is a proponent of universal health care. So we're coming forward slowly, but we need to speed it up and we need to fill the gaps and eliminate the barriers to service. I mean, I just feel very strongly that, that health care is a right and it should be considered a right, not a privilege. We have publicly supported schools in America. There is a law, a public law, that says every child must be provided a free and equal education. That's a federal law. We have a constitutional right to have a public defender or have a lawyer when we go to court. You know, we have roads and bridges and, and all these other things that are in place that everybody gets access to. So why health care is not on the table, I just don't understand. Get the full Code Wax story on ProgressiveVoices.com and on the PV app. Catch all our episodes by subscribing to Code Wack wherever you find your podcasts. 
This podcast is powered by Heal California, a nonprofit that uplifts the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. Until next time, stay healthy. Whether you're listening to Leslie Marshall each Tuesday through Friday or Brad Bannon each Monday, you can hear them from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network. Here's a sample of what you'll hear. They said you will be able to return to Gaza only when another announcement permitting is made. The IDF urged residents to distance themselves from Hamas. It said it was using them as human shields. I think those people would know that better uh, than uh, the IDF. And it warned civilians not to approach the area of a security fence with Israel because it said Hamas militants were hiding in tunnels there underneath homes and buildings and populated uh, that's populated with innocent Gazan civilians. But let's be clear, the IDF, if they really believe they're in tunnels and homes, they're going to bomb the tunnels and homes. They don't wear an H on their head or their back when they're walking. It's, it's not as if they can be identified from uh, aerial uh, photography, uh, an aerial, um, uh, you know, a- aerial satellite that's being used uh, by the military. Hamas is believed to still be holding about 150 hostages in Gaza, Human Rights Watch slammed Israel's complete siege as a call to quell to commit a war crime. They likened it to genocide. They also said the killing of civilians and the taking of hostages constitutes a violation of international law and war crimes. By the way, the Orthodox community is outraged because the killing of innocent is strictly forbidden, uh, the Torah. More than 423,000 people have been displaced in Gaza since the war began. Um, Over two-thirds of these are sheltering in UN-run schools in Gaza. Several schools and hospitals have already sustained damage from airstrikes. And they're just saying there's so many people that have taken shelter in the schools and hospitals they can't get them to move south in 24 hours. President Isaac Herzog is Israel's head of state. He spoke about what he called the largest single massacre of Jews uh, since the Holocaust. When asked about the bombardment of Gaza and the humanitarian situation of civilian while his sadness turned to anger. He was asked what Israel can do to alleviate the impact on the over 2 million civilians in Gaza, many of whom have nothing to do with Hamas. He said, we are working operating militarily according to rules of international law, period, unequivocally. Mm, I, I think that would be up for debate by the UN. It is an entire nation out there that is responsible uh, it is not true. This rhetoric, rhetoric about civilians not aware, not available is absolutely not true. They could have risen up. Can you tell me how a six-month-old baby or a pregnant woman could have known this? I'm sorry. If Israeli intelligence and American intelligence didn't know this, how did you expect civilians, more than half who are children and more than half of the other half of the half that voted a quarter to have known? Again, that's Leslie Marshall every Tuesday through Friday and Brad Bannon every Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network. You're listening to State of Belief Radio on the Progressive Voices Network. Welcome back to the State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. My next guest is both a scholar and a practitioner. Having spent a decade as a working journalist, Diane Winston is now Associate Professor of Journalism and the Knight Chair on Media and Religion at the University of Southern California. With a PhD from Princeton University in Religion and a master's degree from Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism and Harvard Divinity School, Diane has the credentials to unravel a story as complex as the one this book examines, and then some. The book is Writing the American Dream, How the Media Mainstreamed Reagan's Evangelical Vision. Diane Winston, welcome to The State of Belief. Hi, Paul. Thank you for having me today. I want to make sure that people hear it. When I say writing the American dream, it's an R. It could be a WR, but in this case, it's an R. So if you're looking for it on Amazon or wherever, or your local bookstore, even better, that it starts with an R, writing the American dream, how the media mainstreamed Reagan's evangelical vision. What, what was the spark that, that made you say, I have to write this book? When Obama was elected in 2008, it occurred to me that we were on the brink of a large change in our country's vision. I thought that Obama was bringing in a new day, a new era, 
where there would be less individualism, less focus on the market, um, a more open and loving political community. And uh, because he often used the language of religion in his speeches, and because the media had been so um, central, so instrumental in bringing his message to the people, I began thinking that this would be a time to look at how religion and media affect how we think about ourselves as individuals and as citizens of the United States. Now, obviously, that didn't happen. I wrote the book slowly because as a professor, I'm teaching, I'm doing committees. I know people think we sit around and eat bonbons, but most of the time during the school year, I'm pretty hard at work. So in 2016, when Trump was elected, I realized not only had our American vision not changed for the better, it was about to change, in my opinion, for the worse. Mm -hmm. And so the book took on a totally different sense of urgency and importance as I wrote it because I wanted to figure out how Reagan, who I say was the last president to give us a new American vision, how Reagan could possibly lead to Trump. Mm. One of the phrases that you came up with, which I had never heard before, is religious imaginary, which you describe as a religious imaginary expresses a commonsensical collective understanding of what matters and why. Can you talk a little bit more about a religious imaginary and what what that really means and why it's so central to the thesis of this book uh, and understanding really some of what has driven America over the last, geez, almost 40 years. Right. A religious imaginary is a constellation of ideas and images that reflect metaphysical truths, that reflect ethical norms, moral concerns, that are usually not um, verbalized or articulated. It's more a sense of who, it's, it's more a sense of understanding something in your gut. So for example, if I say America is a shining city on a hill, that resonates with people because they've heard this phrase and in their minds, they're thinking we're a shining city on a hill, God blessed us. We have God's blessings. We're going to live out those blessings in the world. So what I suggest is there's one large religious imaginary that is kind of based on the Puritan ideas that God blesses America, and so we're all blessed. But there also are different religious imaginaries that we all live with. So Martin Luther King's beloved community is a religious imaginary that has kept the Black community together. And the Golden Land was a religious imaginary of Jews who came here in the early 20th century. Robert Bella talks about civil religion, which is another kind of imaginary that speaks to secular people. So there are many religious imaginaries, but what I suggest is most Americans also understand and respond to this larger idea of the shining city on a hill, mm. American exceptionalism. Right. Well, and, you know, you write that, you know, I'm going to be quoting you at you uh, uh, quite a bit. And I hope that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so good. The Reaganite religious imaginary rested on two convictions that were part of a conservative Protestant worldview. America, one, America is an exceptional country because it is God's chosen nation. And God wants Americans to be free. Those two things. I mean, that's mm -hmm. very powerful. It's clear. It's understandable. For you, that was like Reagan's religious imaginary that he was right. offering to the people. And I... I just was like, oh, that's so clear. And like, it's so easy to respond to, which I think was part of the the attraction. It did, say more about that. Reagan had the gift of 
taking complex ideas and boiling them down into phrases and words that people could understand. So the shining city on a hill. Actually, it's not a shining city on a hill. In the actual sermon, it's a city on a hill. And it meant that America would be judged by the world as to whether or not it kept its promise to be faithful to God. It wasn't a, you know, benediction of our holiness. It was almost the opposite. It was challenging us. Reagan added the word shining and it changed from this idea that we are being judged by our fellow humans to this idea that we are blessed and above our fellow humans. Mm. And that one little word made such a difference and it was so powerful. And that's the kind of gift Reagan had. He was able to make a complex idea available to the larger public. Right, right. And one of the, the, the central thesis of this book, um, in addition to identifying that and, and the, the myriad of ways that Reagan exercised this uh, during his uh, presidency and the run up to his presidency, um, uh, was the role that media played in helping this become mainstreamed so that it became almost obvious that right. these things were true and that these things could be understood and that, you know, and that one person had that mouthpiece. And and talk to me about that, because you are a professional around media studies. I mean, not, you know, or, you know, media writ large and. And someone who spent a lifetime in some ways in journalism, and yet you write this book that's really in some ways an indictment of journalism in that moment, um, becoming a mouthpiece almost for this religious imaginary that really led to the rise of Reagan and the way we understand Reagan still. I mean, Reagan has become mythologized as this like amazing moment. And, you know, Republicans look back, oh, a Reagan Republican whatever that means. And so, but talk to me about your understanding of the role that media played in sharing this uh, religious imaginary um, of, you know, God as an exceptional co country because it is God's chosen nation and that, you know, God wants Americans to be free. Reagan's biggest success or one of his biggest successes was mainstreaming this evangelical vision to the larger public. Now, when he said shining city on a hill, that meant one thing to religious conservatives. To many secular people, it was a harmless phrase. And in that way, the media helped circulate the message. He did this all the time. So I talk about the um, the well, to start with the evil empire speech that he gave to the National Association of Evangelicals in March of 1983, where he called the Soviet Union an evil empire. Reagan felt communism was an existential evil because it opposed the basic freedoms that America treasured, freedom and democracy, free markets, and religious freedom. And so, it was more than this is our political enemy. It is this is Satan threatening our our life and our destiny. Hmm. And when he used those terms, many reporters backed away from it because, as you know, Paul, many journalists don't know what to do with religion. You know, mm -hmm. either they stay away from it or they, you know, lampoon it or they sensationalize it but usually they don't sensitively try to unpack it. Even though reporters didn't pay much attention to this evil empire idea, pundits picked it up and they talked about the evil empire and they talked about how crazy it was. And even in talking about how crazy it is, they still mainstream the idea because even if media doesn't tell us what to think, it tells us what to think about. Right. And so even if you and I do not believe in an evil empire, if we keep reading about it, it normalizes. Oh, you mentioned that a lot of this wasn't done certainly intentionally. It was just done because in some ways 
Reagan was such a good communicator that they were they just followed his lead. Is that right? Or tell me, nuance yes. that a little bit. That wasn't exactly it, but I. It was a, it was several things. It was partly a reaction to the crusading journalism of the 1970s, uh-huh. when a lot of newspapers were taking down big corporations. It was partly about the sort of news fatigue because there had been so much bad news throughout the 70s. It was partly about the impact of USA Today, you know, light, bright, oh, right, colorful, right. all these changes in the in the news business made reporters softer on Reagan than they had been on either Jimmy Carter or Gerald Ford or Richard Nixon. It made reporters more um, open to this idea of this kindly Hollywood, former Hollywood actor, you know, maybe we take him seriously, maybe we give him a pass. So the news industry was at a point where Reagan's message was picked up and circulated without that much critical attention. But it also reflected Reagan's ability to shape narratives in the way he wanted. So the Evil Empire speech in March resonates in October when there's a communist coup in Grenada. And even though Grenada is a very tiny little nation in the Caribbean, Reagan decides it's time to go in there and drive out the communists. And he framed this invasion of a tiny Caribbean nation as a fight against communism. Mm. And, and the beauty of it was that when American forces went in, he banned the press from following them. It was the first time in since the mid 19th century that the press was not allowed to go and cover the war. That was done intentionally because a lot of people in the administration believed that reporters had lost the war in Vietnam. And mm. the administration wanted to control the story of how we crushed communism in Grenada. And mm. they did that by putting out stories about large supplies of weapons and thousands of soldiers and terrible fighting. And that circulated in the media for several days before actual reporters went in and wrote stories that belied all the previous reporting. There were no great caches of military weapons. There were not thousands of soldiers. This was a tiny little nation. Yet, because Reagan's story was out there because it fed the imaginary and Mm. because it restored American sense of greatness and strength and spreading democracy, a feeling that had been shattered by our defeat in Vietnam, it resonated. Mm. So Reagan was able to control the narrative, not only by being very smart about what he said, but also by controlling the press which is a great example. The other example that just really resonated with me was when AIDS became prevalent um, and the framing and basically the, you know, maybe I'm, you can explain to, he kind of outsourced in a way. That's a great word for it. (laughs) His mouthpiece to Jerry Falwell and allowed Jerry Falwell to frame what AIDS was for the White House, and which was, you know, as someone who was, you know, coming out as gay during that time, how devastating all of this was. Um, you know, this 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 framing of this as a gay plague, which allowed, you know, a certain kind of reaction and whether or not it was important enough to deal with. But his, you know, Reagan's inaction on that is still something that if if you talk to people of my age, we we still can't forgive him for what how, how that right. was. And and we can't forgive Jerry Falwell for the way it was framed and that it was God's punishment. This is like these were all things that and and when we talk about religious imaginary, I mean. There were many, of course, there were many religious leaders who were just like outraged by this because they were actually caring for people who were dying. And they were like trying to, you know, you mentioned uh, William Sloan Coffin, who was saying this is not God's punishment. This is a disease. Um, But it was out there. 
And even gay men were starting to say, okay, this is what happened to me. Right. And it was, that's how powerful this stuff is. And so, right. I mean, talk, talk a little bit about like the role of the major evangelical leaders, Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, others who really were playing, um, you know, kind of uh, feeding this stuff and framing in some ways religion for America. Um, like, right. what is the religious voice of America? Well, there it is. It's Pat Robertson. It's Jerry Falwell. We have them. Yes, and exactly. And that was um, a confluence of the televangelists' media savvy and the media's obtuseness. <laughs> their, their refusal to take religion seriously drove them to quote folks who were giving good quote <laughs> and who had very extremist views. As you say, Falwell became the surrogate for Reagan. Reagan was told by his advisors, don't say anything about AIDS. You're going to lose people, whatever you say. And so he kept quiet for a long time. And because Americans knew that he was um, close to people like Falwell, because they often appeared together and Falwell claimed credit for Reagan's victory, um, the media began turning to Falwell for quotes from religious leaders. And they began framing aid stories in Falwell's terms. So what really knocked me out was a story that was in Newsweek that summer of 83 that basically was written to explain to the public who gays were and what this was about. I think Newsweek intended it to be a positive or at least a neutral story. And yet the subheads were all Falwellian, you know, mm. punishment, discipline, you know, payback, things like that. So even a story that was meant to be positive or at least neutral came out as harsh and, uh, you know, in this terrible language of guilt and yeah. um, shame. It totally reconfirmed the whole frame um, that was, you know, really harmful. Uh, and and you know, psychologically damaging, but also policy. It drove policy. I really think it changed sort of the trajectory of the gay community in America insofar as many in that community saw themselves as countercultural in terms of family life, in terms of where they fit into the structure. And that whole the whole one of the impacts of AIDS was to normalize gayness by seeking marriage equality and by fitting in. I don't know if if those issues would have been as important to the community if the community hadn't wanted to seem normal in the mm. ideas of Americans. Uh, yeah, that, that was often discussed, and certainly it put it put the lives of uh, gay people more front and center. Right. Uh, and humanized it. And when you had, you know, you, when you had people like uh, Princess Diana, you know, going and really talking to people with AIDS and, and you know, others, uh, you know, it did it did um, bring them into uh, into the main line. But but unfortunately, into a certain right. glaring light, which, you know, even going on to, two thousand, you know, 9-11, where the first re reaction of Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson was like, this was the reason this happened was, you know, um, <laughs> again, that we were out of favor with God. And so that we were being harmed. And you know, I want to I want to read like an amazing. Uh, I had not heard this, but this and this is in 1980. And, and you write in 1980, when Ronald Reagan ran for president, he vowed, quote, for those who have abandoned hope will restore hope and will welcome them into a gr great national crusade to make America great again. I, I had never heard that quote. And what has become. And so what Reagan was, and you do a really interesting job of kind of translating how how Reagan and his use of the press, how it translates to Donald Trump's use of the press and how it intersects with both of their use of faith. You know, I'm not in a position to judge, but, you know, the, the idea of like, Ronald Reagan or Donald Trump as paradigms of, of faithful witness is really a questionable one. And yet they both managed to catch the kind of most vocal, vivid, loudest faith voice, which was um, the white Protestant evangelical voice. Um, so 
Talk to me a little bit about how you see what happened with Reagan with the press and his religious imaginary through the the Obama years. I mean, we we had some other steps there, but um, through the Obama years and and into uh, what we're experiencing today with um, with Donald Trump. Reagan's idea of freedom had three basic points: democracy, free markets, and and religious liberty. Religious liberty being the freedom to have your religious beliefs in public, which is to say, if you don't want to serve gay people, you don't have to serve gay people. So these, these I say, took the country from the more FDR tradition of communitarianism and social gospel and a liberal welfare state to more of what we call a market-driven, hyper-individualistic, consumer-oriented country. So Mm. that was the paradigm shift. And what I suggest is that, first of all, I believe that Ronald Reagan was a sincere Christian. I believe he did believe in a lot of what he said I don't think he was fooling anybody. Um, I don't think reporters at the time understood that because he didn't go to church. So obviously he wasn't a real Christian, Hmm. but that's really not a metric for belief and sincerity. So I believe that when Ronald Reagan cut welfare because he believed in personal responsibility, he was not only interested in the ability to cut taxes, but he also believed people on welfare should get a job because that's what God wanted them to do. Now, you could also say that what he did was to sacralize selfishness and self-aggrandizement and um, and hyper-individualism. I don't think Reagan would have necessarily put it in those words, but Trump did. And mm. I think Trump is sort of the, you know, apotheosis of all of Reagan's ideas gone rogue. Mm. So Mm. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say Trump believed in freedom. I wouldn't say, I mean, he believes in, he believes in autocracy. He believes in getting as much as he can for himself. Mm. Ironically, Trump was elected or his election was driven by white evangelicals who ever since the age of Reagan felt their social agenda had not been fulfilled. And so they were angry. Every Republican president let them down and they decided Trump wouldn't and he delivered for them. And that transactional relationship basically helped him become become president. Diane Winston spent over a decade as a journalist and is now associate professor of journalism and night chair of media and religion at the University of Southern California. She is the author and or editor of several books, including Red Hot and Righteous, The Urban Religion of the Salvation Army. Her latest is titled Writing the American Dream, How the Media Mainstreamed Reagan's Evangelical Vision. Diane, thank you so much for being with us today on The State of Belief. Oh, thank you, Paul. It was so fun to talk with you. And that's all the time we have for the State of Belief this week. Please be sure to subscribe to the new and improved podcast called The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. Subscribe to The State of Belief today. We need your help keeping The State of Belief going. I hope you consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And if you're getting something out of this show, share it with your friends and family. Let's get more people listening and keep these conversations going when the show is over. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your networks. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Religion News Service or Religion News Foundation. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. 
And be sure to join us next week for a show with Buddhist teacher Sharon Salzberg and Hindu pundit Sushma Devedi, who will share the light and wisdom of Diwali. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch on The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.